Hi, Katie. Dominique, comment ça va? Good. It was very nice having you in Amsterdam last week. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, we got to see each other in real life, and we ate tacos, and we shared a Mars bar. We also shared a pan au chocolat. And actually, I'm a bit worried that you might have to return your French citizenship after what <laughs> oh you said God. about this Dutch pan au chocolat. Don't tell people! She said it was better than any French pan au chocolat she'd ever eaten. Okay, listen, this pan au chocolat had like three times the usual amount of chocolate in it. And it's made me rethink everything I thought I knew about pan au chocolat. I, I had a normal standard French one yesterday. It just felt really stingy in comparison. Well, I'm really glad that Amsterdam showed you its best pastries. But this week, we're actually <laughs> going to be heading to France for the show. Um, because as probably everyone knows, it was the first round of the French presidential election with Emmanuel Macron running for a second term. He made it into the second round where he will face the far-right politician Marine Le Pen. We were hunting around for a guest to talk about this. And then I found the perfect person. Plot twist. Uh, yeah, it's me, listeners. We realised that I'm a journalist covering the French election and I'm also a French person uh, voting this election for the first time as a citizen. So this week in A European's First, we're keeping it in the family and I'm going to be joined by producer Katz Laszlo to talk to the French reporter Katie Lee about what happened last weekend. Are you going to be really mean to me? Yeah, really mean. Just you wait. Oh no! That's coming up a bit later on, but first it's time for... <laughs> Who's had a bad week, Katie? I'm going to keep this short and snappy because it's so depressing, but I'm going to give bad week to the European housing market. Uh, both rents and the prices of houses to buy have gone up again. There was a 1.3% rise in rents across the EU in the last quarter of 2021 compared to a year earlier, according to our good friends at Eurostat, which is an amazing website, by the way. They just have like mm. all of the data that you could ever want. Uh, house prices, meanwhile, went up 10%, which obviously prices out a lot of people who are hoping to buy a place for the first time. I don't need to tell anyone this, but we are in a cost of living crisis right now, not least because of the terrible war that is raging right here in Europe. And it seems stupid to even complain about it compared to what our Ukrainian friends are going through. But there have been increases in food prices and fuel prices recently. And for people on low incomes, that is really something that means that people are struggling to get to the end of the month. At a time when we know that people's wages haven't been keeping up with the prices of all the stuff that we need to like live our lives. And housing, of course, is one of the biggest expenditures that people have each month. So this is just really, really punishing. Are these price increases like uniformly spread across the EU or are there certain parts of the continent where it's particularly bad? There's some places that have suffered a lot worse than others, actually. I'll put a link to the Eurostat article in the show notes because it kind of gives a long view of how things have changed over the past decade, not just quarter to quarter. And it's actually more towards the centre and east of Europe that the prices have really like rocketed upwards. Uh, in Estonia, Hungary, Luxembourg, Latvia, the Czech Republic, Austria and Lithuania, house prices have doubled in the decade, which wow. seems mind-boggling. Uh, and in Greece and Cyprus, on the other hand, house prices have actually gone down over the last decade, which conversely is bad news for people who were hoping to use their houses as a safe place to put their savings. 
Anyway, I said I would keep this brief, and that is because just telling you a percentage of how much price has gone up doesn't really let you get under the skin of what's happening. So what I wanted to suggest is that people go back and listen to the interview that we did in February with the housing expert Cody Hochstenbach. The episode is called WTF Housing Market, and I just thought that Cody spoke so well about how messed up things have got in housing that all of these depressing figures were just a good excuse to remind everyone to go and listen to that interview. One thing that I really like in particular is how Cody talks about how cities can only really be interesting places to live if creative people can afford to live there. Mm. Uh, it's just a really good interview. So go and check it out. Do that. Who's had a good week? It's been a good week for San Marino because this microstate made the news for a first in world history this week. They appointed the world's first ever openly gay head of state. His name is Paolo Rondelli and he was elected as one of two captains regent, a Ooh. dual job of head of state, a kind of job share. And he's now the first openly gay head of state in the entire world. Captain regent. That's a cool job title. Yeah, it's pretty snazzy. There was just some very nice news to come out of like a super tiny country. I know that it's really, really small, but how small is San Marino? Uh, it's got a population of fewer than 35 thousand people so it's really tiny and it is the world's oldest surviving republic it's located in the apennine mountains surrounded by italy and covers about 61 square kilometers of land san marino elects two of these captains regent every six months so 58 year old paolo rondelli will only be in this job share for half a year but in that half year, he's immediately broken a very important record with his election. Wow, six months. That is quite a short uh, tenancy. It's a lot shorter than the French election. Um, what kind of powers will he have for these six months? Uh, not many, to be honest. Um, <laughs> the position is mainly seen as symbolic to represent the country and uphold the constitution. But they do get the title of excellency. Mm. I have to be honest, when I heard this news, I was a bit surprised that there hadn't been an openly LGBT plus head of state anywhere in the world already. But then I realized that all the examples I had in my head were actually uh, heads of government. Right. For example, the current prime minister of Serbia and the prime minister of Luxembourg at the moment too. So it does actually seem to be a world first. Is San Marino seen as like a generally quite good place for LGBT rights or not really? Uh, it's okay now, but historically, no. Uh, homosexuality was punishable by imprisonment up until 2004. Ah. That is mind-bogglingly recent. It's crazy. Although there are no reports that this law was actually ever enforced. Still, it's gross that it existed. Things have been getting steadily better for queer people since then in San Marino. And same-sex civil partnerships became operationally legal finally in 2019. So this election of a gay man in this symbolic post is quite a big statement and is hopefully showing young people in San Marino that your sexuality should have absolutely no bearing on what job you can or can't get. Paolo Rondelli has actually held many different jobs, uh, including being San Marino's ambassador to the US for a while. He also worked for UEFA, and he was even chairman for San Marino's Eurovision jury in 2019, if his LinkedIn is to be believed. Wait, is this the controversial year? No, the controversial year was 2021. You're talking about when uh, they had Adrenalina, which was actually quite a good song, rather bizarrely featured Flow Rider. Flow 
writer. Who is American. Does he have any link to San Marino? I don't think he does. It was strange. Anyway, Paolo had nothing to do with that, so we shouldn't blame him or get him involved in that controversy. And it was actually quite a good song, so who can blame them? (laughs) Paolo has also been fighting for women's rights and LGBT rights throughout his career. He was vice president of an Italian LGBT charity called Archie Gay for a while. He actually went to this Italian organization, apparently in part because there was no San Marino-based LGBT advocacy group. It just didn't exist. And I found some quotes from him from earlier in the year in a piece about why it was that microstates like San Marino had moved slower than larger European countries when it came to giving equal rights to LGBT plus people. Hmm. It's a really interesting read. I'll put a link in the show notes. And in this piece, he says that winds of change from bigger countries were starting to sway San Marino's conservative traditions. But actually, his appointment makes San Marino seem rather more progressive than the huge country of Italy, which surrounds San Marino. Italy's Senate failed to pass legislation which would have made violence against LGBT people a hate crime last year, for example. So I think his appointment is a positive step for San Marino and a great example for the rest of the world. So I gladly give him our coveted position of Good Week this week. It's time to thank the lovely people who have decided to support this podcast on Patreon this week. Thank you to Romy Hollenberg, Ariel Brunner, Greta Bradford, Ivo Andrich, and Yerne Virag for increasing his pledge. Yeah, given the aforementioned crazy inflation thing, we're actually hoping to start paying our producers and ourselves a little bit better to help everyone deal with that. And we know that money is tight for a lot of people right now. But if you enjoy this podcast and you have a couple of bucks to spare every month, we would love it if you could subscribe to support us. You can find all the info at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. For our interview segment today, I'm very happy to be joined by our producer, Katz Laszlo. Hi, Katz. Hello. So this past Sunday, the people of France went to the poll to choose from a list of 12 candidates. The top two winners of the night in the French presidential election go through to the second round, and one of them will become the president. It will either be centrist president Emmanuel Macron, who got just less than 28% of the vote, or it will be his far-right rival Marine Le Pen, who sits just above 23%. That second round will be on the 24th of April. But today, we wanted to look back on what happened last weekend and speak to one of the people who was actually in the voting booth. Same one. Yes. (laughs) Katie, how was it? How did it feel voting so soon after securing French citizenship? Do you know what? It felt really good. And I was sort of like giddily clutching my little uh, election card as I went to the polling station. One of the things I really like about voting in France is that after you drop your ballot slip into the box thingy, um, somebody says, Avouti! They voted. And it's just this nice little uh, announcement to the room. I think we should have it at all elections. That's really performative. Yeah, it's a little bit theatrical <laughs> and must get really annoying for people with like tens of thousands of people visiting their polling station in a day. But I liked it a lot. You were at a Marine Le Pen rally the night of the election. What was that like? <laughs> quite weird. Um, I have been to quite a lot of far right things in France in recent years. 
But do you know what? It, it did feel surprisingly different attending this thing as a newly French person. Just as I was going in, I suddenly got struck with this like wave of paranoia about the fact that I had to hand over my ID card to get in. And that they might ask questions about like, you know, why have you got a funny accent and all of this kind of stuff, which is completely crazy because they obviously just like took one quick look at it and moved on. But I did have this like really strong impression that, oh my God, I am exactly the kind of person that these people really dislike, which is a non-white person who has become French so that I can just, you know, steal benefits from the French welfare state or whatever it is. <laughs> so that was kind of weird. And it was weird to be in this sort of crowd of flag waving people screaming like, Marine, président. And yeah, it, it felt, I guess, a little bit like a Trump rally to some extent. <laughs> but in terms of the mood, yeah, people were pretty delighted. You know, it's always hard to read between the lines of whether people genuinely think that their candidate can win or whether that's just something that they're saying because it's what you're supposed to say. But I really did get the sense talking to people that she is closer to power than she has ever been. And they do to some extent think that she has a genuine chance of winning. And do you think she could actually win? I mean, what are the polls saying? So the polls are pretty close. They're certainly much closer than they were last time Marine Le Pen and Macron faced off five years ago. On average, the polls are showing that Macron is on 53% and Le Pen on 47 mm. So that's close. So a lot is going to rest on who actually turns up on polling day in two weeks' time. Her path to power relies on quite a lot of slightly unlikely things happening because if you look at the maths of it, she got about 23% of the vote, right? And the other far-right candidate, Eric Zemmour, who was even more extreme than her, he got 7%. So that gives her about 30% of the vote. So she needs to convince a whole extra bunch of people to vote for her. Some of those people would have to be people who just didn't show up for this first round at the weekend. And some of the others are going to have to be left-wingers, which sounds kind of crazy, but the thing that's kind of strange about French politics is it often works a lot like a horseshoe. And over the years, I've met quite a lot of people who used to be far left voters and they're now far right voters, um, particularly if you go to like kind of deindustrialized areas, you'll meet a lot of people like that, you know, people who used to be, I don't know, steel workers, for example, and they grew up this whole like culture of trade unions and stuff like that. And then they've just felt really forgotten in recent years. They flipped over to the far right. Mm. So she's really banking on quite a lot of people in that sort of camp and generally left wing people voting for her. One of the really interesting things about her policy platform is that the economics of it are really pretty left wing. So there's a lot of things in there like, you know, under 30 year olds don't have to pay income tax at all. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thought you might like that one. Are you going to vote for Marine Le Pen? You've won Katz's vote. <laughs> I've only got a few months left. Um, so that kind of thing does appeal to left-wing voters. It's a really powerful combination that she's come up with of like a left-wing economic platform plus this right-wing focus on identity and immigration and, uh, and Islamophobia, frankly. You got a bit of shit online, didn't you, for calling her far-right. Mm. Where do you sit on that debate <laughs> now you've engaged with your trolls? Something that's really interesting in this election is just how much Marine Le Pen has managed to pull off like a complete image change and make herself seen as a non-taboo 
candidate anymore. And that's been helped a lot by the presence of this far-right TV pundit, uh, Eric Zemmour, further to the right, which makes her look like a sort of more socially acceptable option. But also, you know, I've been following her for years and like watching how she brands herself online. And something that was really interesting last night is that everyone just calls her Marine. She's not Le Pen, which is not like a new thing this time around, but it's really something that she's been trying to do. Her name is like really tarnished because her dad was this like total racist anti-Semite. So for her to brand herself as Marine, you know, she's just friendly Marine. It's a much more cuddly image. Hmm. And she's also done all of this stuff like, I don't know if you noticed, but she she got a diploma as a cat breeder during COVID. What? <laughs> Why? <laughs> she loves cats, man. She's like kind of a crazy cat lady. And she's been really leaning into that as part of her brand as this sort of smiley 50 something year old single lady loving life. And it's just like... <laughs> It kind of works, you know, like a lot of people, like this guy I was talking to yesterday, he has been handing out Le Pen leaflets on the street. And he told me that when he did that in 2017, he got a lot of people stopping him saying, your candidate is a racist. And he said he hadn't had any of those complaints this time around. But she is a racist, right? Yeah, sorry, I got really off track. Um, when you actually look at her policy platform, this is the thing. It doesn't match this cuddly image. And I would argue that it is still a far right policy program, whatever you might say about, oh, maybe she's just a nationalist and it's it's not that bad. I mean, one of the most terrifying, in my opinion, policies is that she wants to ban Muslim women from wearing the veil in public, you know, even just like a hijab. Oof. And uh, there's nothing in there about, you know, banning people from wearing the cross in public or Jewish men from wearing a kippah. So it's really like singling out this minority, Muslim women, for attack. And that to me is pretty scary. Mm. Um, she also wants to bring in this policy of what her party called national preference. This idea that you would be able to give French citizens preference over other people who are here legally for things like housing and jobs. And that is, you know, currently illegal, but I think would mean a really big change in just how life operates here in France. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the horseshoe because there's a quite far left party in the Netherlands who's pro banning um, headscarves in public as well. Mm. So um, turnout was down 4.4% in this election compared to last. Why do you think fewer people are coming out to vote? You know, it's not a new thing this time around. This is like a really long term trend in France that we've been seeing for decades. And it's also not just a French thing. I think it's true in a lot of Western democracies that people are either feeling like they can't be bothered to vote or that the system is broken and it just doesn't work for them. It's funny, I've, I've worked with a lot of people in countries that don't have properly working democracies. So I do sometimes get really frustrated when people don't go and vote because it's like, why are people so ungrateful for this system, which mm. I still think is not a perfect system, but it's kind of the best that we have. But if you want to look at it from a you know more charitable point of view, it's like, why do people feel like this system just doesn't work for them or it doesn't feel like it doesn't give them a voice? And I spent a lot of Saturday walking around my neighborhoods uh, for a piece that I was writing and I live in a pretty left-wing neighborhood. A lot of people here voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's the who ended up being the sort of main hope of the left in this election. And it felt like everyone in this neighborhood was either voting for Jean-Luc Mélenchon or they weren't voting at all. Hmm. And the people who weren't voting at all, they would say stuff like, you know, my vote doesn't change anything. And what's the point of this? And I find it kind of frustrating because this is a presidential system where it is one person, one vote. 
So people's individual votes really do change something. In the second round in particular, I think that left-wingers are really tired of being told to vote for candidates who are pretty conservative to block the far right because it's like, (laughs) go to an election and vote for someone that you don't like over and over again. And I can see why it's really frustrating. But in the second round, where the stakes are really, really high, we are looking at a possible far-right presidency. I do hope that the turnout will be higher. Yeah, from what I hear, a lot of left-wing people in France are not so happy with how Macron has governed because he kind of came to prominence as a a centre-left political figure, or he was part of a centre-left government anyway. But I think it's fair to say that he's been governing to the right of centre. Do you think there's any chance that he will try and pivot over the next few weeks in his campaign towards the left to try and pick up votes from people who voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon? I think he has to. I don't think he has any other choice. Like, if you look at the polls and whose votes are still to play for, Jean-Luc Mélenchon's votes are the biggest chunk of votes that are up for grabs. It's like 22%. And a lot of those are not super hard left people who really, really hate him because those people are never going to vote for him. They see voting for Macron as not that different from voting for Le Pen, even though uh, I would argue there's still quite a big difference. Um, So there's quite a lot of centre-left people in there who will vote for him. But I mean, you're right. He is going to have to try and convince these people that he hasn't secretly actually been a centre-right president all this time after coming to power saying, I'm not going to be of the left or the right. I'm going to be something in between, something new and something different. Those people are really pretty jaded with his record. I mean, the campaign has started on this front already. Like on Monday, he went to the Hauts-de-France region, which is a deindustrialized region where a lot of people have started voting for the far left and the far right in recent years. So he's trying to show that these people are not forgotten. I think to his credit, even though I do agree that he has governed largely as a centre-right president for the last five years, he's done more on like the cost of living crisis and things like that than I think he has probably been given credit for in the last few weeks. So Marine Le Pen has been campaigning super hard on cost of living stuff and saying, I'm the only candidate who knows how normal people are suffering. And yes, the French government could be doing a lot more right now, but it's also been doing things like, you know, even me, for example, I got a hundred euro payment just landing in my bank account as a struggling freelancer saying, uh, we can see from your tax records that you probably need a bit of extra money right now. Here's some extra money. That sounds amazing. (laughs) So that was nice. And, um, you know, for non-urban people, one of the big things that the government's done in the last couple of weeks is to put a 15 cent subsidy, effectively, on every litre of like fuel at the pump. Hmm. So he hasn't done nothing. And he gets criticised a lot for being a président des riches, a president of the rich, which I think has been true to some extent. When you look at his like overall record, the purchasing power of the average family in France has actually gone up over the last five years, but it has benefited more well-off families that little bit more. So he has some making up to do, I think, to the left. That's, I think, very much going to be the focus of the next two weeks for him. I think you are going to see the campaign shifting uh, to the left a little bit, which in my view is welcome because so far there's been a lot of stuff about immigration and um, and identity and these sort of more right-wing talking points. And wokeism. Le wokeism, yes. One of the favourite words in France at these times. Um, is he also going to try and attack Marine Le Pen for being too cosy with Putin? Yeah, I think that's definitely something that's going to come up because she's kind of got away with it for the last few weeks. What? So Eric Zemmour, this candidate that was even further to the right than she is, 
one of the reasons he did so badly, he only got about 7% in the end, was because he got really hammered by the fact that he has been saying really positive, glowing things about Putin for like ages, years, in fact, and saying that France needed a, a French version of Putin. So a lot of his voters ended up transferring to her in the end. But we should remember that she has also got her own Putin problem. So her party borrowed about 9 million euros from Russia, which they're still paying back. And there's like photos of her and Putin like smiling together. So I really think this is something that Macron is going to hammer her over over the next two weeks. And if he doesn't, he's not very good at campaigning. We'll see. <laughs> Policy advisor Katie, that's a free one. <laughs> You're welcome. Obviously, the result of this election will have a big impact on the EU as well, because like France is the second biggest country in the EU, and Macron is kind of seen by some as like the de facto leader of the EU at the moment. What do you think a Le Pen victory would mean for the EU? I think it would be at least as traumatic as Brexit, because you know last time Marine Le Pen she campaigned for a Frexit. This time around, she dropped that policy because uh, no offense to the UK, but it just doesn't look that attractive from over here. <laughs> so she's no longer proposing that. But she would like radically transform how the EU can operate. Like I think it'd be really paralyzing. So for one thing, she wants to drop EU contributions, which is a major thing. It's like one of the biggest contributors to the EU budget as the second biggest economy in the EU. She also wants to prioritize an alliance with like-minded governments that are really big on sovereignty, in inverted commas, uh, like Hungary and Poland. She's a really big fan of Orban and she congratulated him very, very warmly uh, when he got re-elected recently. Schengen as well. She wants to renegotiate it. She wants like checks on goods that are coming in across the borders and some kind of checks on citizens. So that's like free movement kind of blown out of the water. I mean, some people think that all of her suggestions, when you combine them, are a kind of Frexit without calling it a Frexit. And yeah, you know, like I don't want to make France sound more important than it is because I really hate it when people talk like France and Germany are the only countries in the EU that matter because it's it's not like that at all. Mm. But it is the second biggest economy. It's the second biggest population. And when you think about how influential Macron has been in like trying to push this liberal agenda and closer integration between EU countries in lots of ways, it would just be like a total sea change. I don't even have the words to describe how big it would be. I've seen some articles that are suggesting that in 2027, that could be the year that a far-right leader could possibly win the French presidency. How do you think about that possibility? You know, it's something that I've started thinking about recently while I'm lying awake at night. Because <laughs> like we're so focused on the here and now and this election and what's going to happen in this election. But I did start thinking, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago now, like, huh, this is the last election that Macron can run in because you only you can only do two consecutive terms, right? Mm. And he has absolutely obliterated the centre-left and the centre-right. They're just like nowhere to be seen. So Anne Hidalgo, the socialist candidate, she got like less than 2% of the vote. Wow. The mainstream right-wing candidate, even though she was really pretty right-wing in the end, she got less than 5% of the vote. So those parties you know, even though they're still governing a lot of town halls across France, they're like nowhere to be seen on the national scale. So, you know, five years in politics is a long time. And you would hope that someone from the centre or the left would turn up within those five years and like be a credible president. But if that doesn't happen, and you have to look at the long term trends in France, which are like, yeah, more and more people 
voting for the hard left and the hard right in France. I think it's a real possibility. Uh, sorry to end things on a terrifying note. That's me done now. <laughs> Maybe an apocalypse will come along and change everything. <laughs> Maybe we won't even be here. Ah! <laughs> What have you been enjoying this week, Katie? Well, I didn't have much spare time this week, but on my train ride to and from seeing you, Dominic, I got stuck into Free by Leia Upi, which is an autobiography that came out last year. And it is about Leia's adolescence growing up in Albania just around the time of the collapse of communism in 1990. And it's just one of those books that like immediately sucks you in because she just draws this world so vividly. And like how all of the ideas that she grew up with about what socialism was and what a good society was and what it meant to be free, all of that just got wiped away basically overnight. Uh, Leia is a really lovely, engaging writer. It's a really funny book, even though it's about something really huge, this overnight transformation of society as people knew it. And uh, yeah, I really, really recommend it. And if you can't get hold of it, might I suggest that you check out an episode that we made last year. Yes, I am opportunistically plugging my own podcast. Uh, but we made a beautiful episode called Sara, which is also set in 1990s Albania at this time of huge transition. And it's about what that looked and felt like and tasted like, in fact. It's a food-related episode. Uh, I will put the link to that episode in the old show notes. I think we've used up all our tokens to refer to past episodes for like the next <laughs> three months. No more self-promotion. What have you been enjoying? I went to see a very impressive Austrian film this week called Große Freiheit or Great Freedom. It's a story set in post-war Germany that follows a man who is in prison for having had sex with men. It's a really painful, sad story that is also kind of subtly romantic in its own way. It plays a lot with flashbacks and flash forward, which I often find really annoying when I'm watching a film. But in this case, it's so effective. I've not ever seen it done so dramaturgically effectively. It won a jury award at Cannes in 2021, and it's now on cinema release in a few European countries, including the Netherlands, Ireland, Poland, and Sweden. It's also coming up on Mubi in the UK soon. So go hunt it down. It's really moving. Our happy ending this week comes from Greece, where the Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis inaugurated Europe's largest double-sided solar park last week. Double-sided? Yeah, it's just like double-sided sellotape, but with solar panels on both sides instead of sticky stuff. Oh, seriously? Um, so like both sides of the panel can like suck in the sun? Yeah. Please don't ask me anything more about how it works. <laughs> okay. I have no idea. Let's just be happy about it, okay? The solar park has a capacity of 204 megawatts, which is going to provide energy for a whopping 75,000 households. Mitsotakis used this inauguration to announce that Greece would be speeding up the permit process for offshore wind parks as part of a strategy to accelerate Greece's transition to renewable energy sources. This solar park could power like twice... San Marino. That's so true. Amazing. Greece is currently a bit ahead of its targets for renewable energy, and it hopes to have at least 35% of its energy coming from renewables by 2035. So some happy energy news for all of us. Much needed. 
will be back next week when hopefully I will have slept a bit. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at EuropeansPod and Instagram at EuropeansPodcast, where there's a lovely picture of me and Dominic smiling with our dodgy British smiles. You can also email us at hello at europeanspodcast.com. We really do love receiving your emails, even if we're not always that good at replying quickly. We do try our best. The show is produced this week by me, somehow, in the midst of everything else. And our team also includes the wonderful Katz Laszlo and Wojciech Alexiak. We are members of the Are We Europe audio family. Go and check out their other audio offerings at areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. À la prochaine. Arrivederci.